we come to the end of our study of Second Timothy, a personal letter from Paul to Timothy, his dear son. And he gives him at least four charges that we see in this letter to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to him, um, to understand that the way of the Christian may involve suffering, but it certainly requires endurance. Thirdly, that he is to continue in what he has learned. And lastly, we saw he is to preach the word. Last week, we looked at the basis for the charge. The charge is actually found in verse number two, but the basis is in verse number one. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Paul gives this charge in the presence of the Father and the Son, but his emphasis, I think, is elsewhere. It is on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seen as judge, who will judge the living and the dead, as the one who is returning, the epiphany, and thirdly, he is the king. After this, Paul writes to the contemporary scene why it is that Timothy needs to preach the word, and it is because people, in fact, will go after those who are preaching false doctrine. But in supporting this charge, we saw last week that Paul writes of his example and his approaching death. If you have your Bibles there. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And here, for the first time, we learn that, in fact, Paul expects that in fact he will soon be put to death. His imprisonment will lead to his execution. And then in verse number 7, Paul is very aware that his ministry is over. And in verse number 8, he knows that the prize awaits him. And if you notice in verse number 8, he actually comes full circle from verse number 1, because here again we see Christ Jesus as the righteous judge, as the returning one, at his appearing, the epiphany, and that he is the king, he is the Lord. Today we come to the last part of this letter. And if you would follow along and listen as I read, beginning in verse number 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the house of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. 
The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. After the remarkable words of verse number 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and his confident anticipation in verse number 8, Therefore there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. We might be surprised by what we read in these verses as Paul describes his present predicament. Specifically, I think he really feels isolated and alone. We might be surprised, I think, because we so easily forget that Paul was a human being, that he was a creature of flesh and blood, a man of like nature and passions as ourselves. By the way, that expression, a man of like passions and nature, something we find in James 5, when uh, James is writing about Elijah, the prophet, that we should pray as he did, because Elijah was a man just like us. We shouldn't imagine that he was superhuman, but in fact he was human. Although Paul has finished his course and is waiting, awaiting his crown, he is still a frail human being with ordinary human needs. In the closing, letters, uh, closing words of this letter, he describes his plight and particularly his loneliness. You see, you need to remember that this is a letter. This is not a theological treatise. It is not a paper given at a seminar or a conference. It is a letter from one human being to another, from one person to another, from one friend to his dear friend. And as such, we should expect that there would be something quite personal in it. First of all, let's talk about his friends. He describes his situation. First of all, in verses 10 and 12, some of his friends have left him. Four in particular uh, are mentioned in verse number 10 and then one in verse number 12. First of all is Demas. His absence is described as desertion. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I don't want to read too much into this text, but I get a sense that this was quite painful for Paul. Previously, Demas has been mentioned in the New Testament. He is mentioned in Colossians 4 and in Philemon verse number 24. Listen to what Paul wrote about him. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. And then in Philemon, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. You may have noticed that in both passages, Demas and Luke are mentioned together. Here, now at the end, Demas has deserted Paul. In the next verse, in verse number 11, only Luke is with me. So Luke had stayed, but Demas had deserted him. The desertion has resulted, or the abandonment has resulted, because Demas loved this world. It's way too easy to read too much into what is being said here. I think we need to appreciate something. To appreciate this, let's go back to verse number 8. At the end, he talks about the fact that there's a crown of righteousness waiting for him, but not only for him, but for all those who have longed for his appearing. Both in the King James and the ESV, they say those who love his appearing. I think that we need to understand Demas' desertion in the light of the return of Jesus. Instead of loving the return, instead of anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus, Demas loves the world instead. 
Now, the problem is not, again, let's not read too much into it, it is not to say that Demas did not love the return of Jesus, that he did not anticipate the return of Jesus, but rather he loved something more than that. I mentioned this many years ago. I always think of Jason uh, when I, because he was studying this. He was still in high school. From the Shakespearean play Julius Caesar, Brutus is trying to explain to the mob why he assassinated his good friend. And he says this, not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. And I think for Demas, it is not that he necessarily loved Jesus or the second coming less, but he came to love the world more. I don't know that he necessarily abandoned the Christian faith. In fact, if we could go back in time and interview Demas, I think he might be quite shocked if we would think he was no longer a Christian. Because for him, yes, he is a Christian. He loves the Lord Jesus. He may not be aware of it, but something is now more important in his life than the Lord Jesus. It is this world, this age. And so he has gone back to Thessalonica. The other three mentioned, uh, we think may have been sent by Paul to continue the work that he had begun. So Crescens has gone to Galatia. We know nothing about this man. It's the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. Titus has gone to Dalmatia, which is across the Adriatic Sea from Venice. He originally had been in Crete. That's where Paul writes in the epistle to Titus. He has now gone on to continue work there. And then Tychicus, he says, I sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is mentioned a number of times in Paul's writings. In Ephesians 6, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know what I'm, how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. And then in Colossians 4, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And then in Titus, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. I mention all of this to tell you that even though Demas has left, Paul is not alone. Yes, others have left, but if you look in verses 11 and 21, you will read, in, first of all in verse 11, only Luke is with me. But then in verse number 21, Eubulus greets you, as, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. To hear that Luke is still with him, I think, is quite moving. Moving, I think, in a positive way, just as Demas' abandoning him is quite moving in, in the opposite direction. Luke is described in Colossians 4 as a doctor, the beloved physician. He is the author, we believe, of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He traveled with Paul on his various missionary journeys. And we know this, if you read the book of Acts, you're going through and it's all in the third person. He did this, they did this, and then suddenly you hear, we did this. And it happens five times. Um, the first time is in verse number, uh, in chapter 16. And let me just read the passage where we have the transition. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. 
When they came to the province of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So at some point, Luke joins Paul in his missionary endeavors. I said there are five we passages. The last two involve Paul being shipwrecked on the island of Malta. So Luke not only traveled with him, he had the experience of being shipwrecked with Paul as well. And now at the end, at near the end of Paul's life, Luke is still with him. But others are as well. We're given three names, four names, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and then all the brothers. So we can conclude Paul was not alone. But he does miss his friends. If you look at verses 19 and 20, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth when he first went there as a missionary. I think it's where they met, and they met because they had the same occupation. They made tents for a living. Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out of Rome. All the Jews were forced to leave Rome, so they went to the other economic center. They went to Corinth, and there they met Paul. And then when Paul went to Ephesus, they were there as well. Finally, they returned to Rome, because in Romans 16, as Paul is greeting all the people, Jesse read us all those names that one Sunday, Priscilla and Aquila are in Rome. There's a church in their house. But apparently they have left Rome again, and now they are in Ephesus. And Paul sends greetings from Rome to Ephesus to them, to his dear friends. Onesiphorus was mentioned in chapter 1 as someone, when everyone had deserted Paul, Onesiphorus had not, and then when he came to Rome, he searched hard for Paul and took care of him. So Paul was not without friends. But there were times when he stood alone. But first a word about the opposition. It seems a bit strange, these last verses, because it seems somewhat jumbled. But in verses 14 and 15, he talks about a man named Alexander. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Paul is alone, but he's not thinking only of himself. He's thinking of Timothy. This Alexander character, we're not sure who he was beyond the fact that he was a metal worker. We are told he did a great deal of harm to Paul. And so he tells Timothy, you need to be on your guard. I'm in chains here in Rome but I'm thinking about you, Timothy, there in Ephesus, and you need to watch out for this guy because he hates, he opposes the message of the gospel. Now, in verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul says that he was alone during his first defense. If you look at verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. In light of the friends that he had, particularly Dr. Luke, the physician, it seems strange, it sounds strange that Paul was abandoned during what is known in uh, Roman law as the prima actio. It is the preliminary investigation before the formal trial itself begins. 
Roman law said that in this preliminary hearing, you could bring a lawyer, you could bring witnesses. And Paul has neither. No one has stood with him or no one stood with him during this very difficult time. It has been suggested, and I would have you consider if you read through this passage again, how that Paul's experience at his trial was very similar to that of Jesus at his trial. Jesus said the time is coming and has is coming and has come when you will all be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And Paul writes, The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. There are two questions, though, from these verses that come up. The first is in verse number 17. Who is the lion? And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. We need to remember that Paul was a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen could not be put in the arena to be eaten by wild animals. You could only do that to non-citizens. A Roman citizen had to be beheaded. They had special privileges. They were not to suffer in their death. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. From historical records, we know that when the emperor Tiberius died in 37, the message was sent to Agrippa in Palestine, and the message simply said, the lion is dead. And so, in fact, lion may have been code language for the emperor. Some have suggested that the lion is, in fact, Satan from the passage in First Peter. Um, others have suggested we look to Psalm 22. Verse 21 begins, Save me from the mouth of the lion. And Paul says, in fact, that the Lord has done precisely that. Um, that's the first question and uh, for me I think he's talking about the emperor uh, that God has delivered him from Nero at this point the second question is how can Paul say that he will be rescued when in fact he said that his death is approaching he says the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom the final petition in the Lord's prayer is Deliver us from evil. And Paul is confident. He knows that the Lord will rescue him from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That is to say, death is not the end. It is something through which we must all pass in order to enter the heavenly kingdom. But it is not the evil attack. The issue for Paul for us should be that the Lord Jesus will protect us. He will rescue us from those evil attacks that will lead us astray. And he, in turn, will bring us into the heavenly kingdom. I want to talk briefly about Paul the human being. I brought this up near the beginning, but Paul was human. And and we really need to see that. He is alone in prison and he keenly feels that loneliness. And so he asks for Timothy uh, to bring three things. First of all, he wants people to keep him company. Secondly, he wants a cloak to keep him warm. And thirdly, he wants books and parchments to keep him occupied. First of all, for people. 
in verse number 9, do your best to come to me quickly. And then verse 11, B, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And then verse 21, do your best to get here before winter. I think at this point we might become a bit uncomfortable. Because this is not the portrait, this is not the picture we have of Paul in our minds. It doesn't match the image we have of Paul the Apostle, the image that we have of a leader. Someone like Paul, an apostle no less, is not seen as needing anyone or anything. It's lonely at the top, so we are told. To be a leader means to be alone and not to need anything or anyone. Yet here is the Apostle Paul with friends around him. Luke, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, all the brothers are with him. And yet, what does he write to Timothy? Do your best to come here quickly. Do your best to get here before winter. Get Mark and bring him with you. The people of God are precisely that. We are a people, a group of persons together. Somehow, I think we idolize, and I think this is partly an American thing, culturally, we idolize the loner until they get up in the tower with a rifle and start shooting people. Um, But we sort of like someone who needs no one else, who can stand alone. And because that's what we tend to idolize, And we like Paul, we sort of reshape Paul into that image of here's a man who didn't need anything. And in fact, when we talk about Paul and his missionary journeys, I think we really do a great disservice because we imagine that Paul's traipsing around Asia Minor and then Europe by himself, and he was never alone. We have the one exception in Athens, and it is exceptional. All the other times he had people with him. And we talk about the Pauline epistles, the letters that Paul wrote. Half of the letters that Paul wrote, go back and look at the first verses. It's Paul and Timothy. Paul and Silas. But we prefer that one strong figure, that one apostle, who is above everyone else, who doesn't need everyone else. And so when we read these verses, um, we get really uncomfortable. And we shouldn't. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. It's a favorite passage of mine. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Let's just stop there. Paul, afraid? Fears within? Paul? We imagine he's superhuman. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. That is to say, the physical presence, the arrival of Titus, a fellow servant, a fellow human being, that is what God used to bring comfort to Paul. Paul did not stand by himself on his own. He needed other people. Paul was human. Even at the beginning of things, before sin entered into creation, we are told that it is not good for a man, for a person, to be alone. And this doesn't speak just of marriage, 
But speaking of social interaction, people are not meant to be alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the teacher tells us the emptiness of the unshared life. Listen. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. To be a human being means we need other human beings around us. You might say, yes, but Paul was an apostle. Yes, he was a child of God. He was a member of the family of God and he wanted his brothers and sisters to be with him. The idea that a person should stand alone, that a Christian doesn't need anyone else, I think is contrary to what God intends. And if you think about many of the practices that have come about in the church, some of them encourage isolation, and we really need to be careful of that. We should not be surprised that Paul needs human company. The second thing he needs is something to keep his body warm. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas. And then, in verse 21, do your best to come before winter. What Paul is asking Timothy to do is to bring him a piece of clothing. It is an outer garment. It was circular in nature, and it had a hole for the head. And then you threw it over yourself, and it kept you warm. Made of heavy material, it was something that you wore in the winter. Paul wants Timothy to come before winter gets there with the cloak, so he has something to keep himself warm. Thirdly, he asks for books and parchments to keep him occupied. Bring my scrolls, especially the parchments. Just a bit of information. The difference between a scroll and a parchment, a scroll is made of papyrus and parchment is made of animal skin. Some have suggested that Paul is asking for blank writing materials. Um, I don't think that this is likely. If he wanted papyrus, if he wanted scrolls or parchments to write on, he was in Rome, could certainly get them there. I think what he's talking about are reading materials. He misses his books. Probably the Old Testament and other writings as well. So let's be clear. When Paul speaks of his first defense, he says, The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And he writes of his friends that are with him, Luke and others. Yet Paul still writes of needs. When we are lonely, we need friends. When we are cold, we need clothing, we need blankets, we need something to keep us warm. And when our minds are bored, Paul would tell us we need books. To admit this is not to be unspiritual at all. It is to admit that we are human. One writer put it this way, We are never for one moment denaturalized by grace. 
That is to say, when grace comes into our lives, when we become the children of God, it doesn't suddenly mean that we're no longer human. That Christians don't get cold, that Christians don't get sick, Christians don't get lonely, Christians don't get bored. Really? Why would we think that? Do we imagine that Paul could sit in a cell all day and, and not get cold, not be lonely, not need something to keep his mind active? We should not deny that we are human, that we are frail. We should not pretend that we are made of sterner stuff than that and that we can take it. Paul freely admitted his frailty to Timothy. And then the benediction. It's actually found in the last verse. But in verse number 18, we have a doxology of sorts. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And in verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. After describing how the Lord stood by him at his first defense, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And this leads him to praise God, to praise, praise the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is well aware and he wants Timothy and the other readers to be aware. Who is to receive the glory? Paul is about to be martyred. Should this somehow elevate him in our sight? Should we now begin to think of him in a higher way? Should we think that somehow we should praise or idolize or glorify Paul? Not at all. The glory goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be wondering, who else is reading this letter? Because I said that he wants Timothy and the other readers of this letter thought this was a personal letter. The last verse of the letter gives us insight. The Lord be with your spirit. This is for Timothy. It is in the singular. The Lord be with your spirit. Singular. Timothy. But then grace be with you all. It is plural. While the letter is in fact for Timothy, the word of grace is for the church in Ephesus. We should never forget as Christians that we are not alone, that we are not to be alone. We're not to seek to be alone. We are to seek to be with the people of God. Just one last word. I, I, I think that some people imagine that to be a Christian is to be superhuman. Uh, to be a pastor is to be superhuman. To be an apostle is to be superhuman. And nothing could be further from the truth. To be a Christian is to acknowledge I am a human being made in the image of God and being remade in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I should not be surprised if I get sick or if I get depressed or if I am lonely. Perhaps even if I am bored, if my mind wanders, this is part of what it means to be human. And we need to stand together. We cannot stand alone. Let's pray together.
Father, it's, it's a remarkable thing that we are your children. And that should be enough for us. But somehow, we want to be more than that. We want to be perhaps less human or superhuman. We don't want to suffer like other people do. We want to imagine that we are above all of that. And so in some ways it's quite shocking to hear Paul talk of needing heavy clothing, of needing companionship, of needing something to read. We may have thought that he was beyond all that, that he didn't need that. But it was he was human, as are we. And while, like him, you stand by us, you can guide us and give us wisdom and direction. We are part of a family. We have brothers and sisters. We're not to stand alone. I thank you for this last letter that Paul wrote to his dear son Timothy and from what we have learned from it. By your spirit and by your grace, may we put these things into practice. We pray for those that are traveling for Gwen as she comes back from San Francisco, for Dan and Lonnie as they leave tomorrow for the Philippines. We pray for safety as they travel and that you would bring them back to us. We don't know what this week brings, but you do. You're already there. You've prepared the way for each one of us. Help us to trust you. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.